0: Welcome, everybody, to this month's episode of the S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. I'm Sarah Kolbeck. I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I also direct our Division of Suicide Research and Healing in our Comprehensive Injury Center. And I'm here today with Andrew.
1: Hey, everyone. I am Andrew Schramm. I'm a clinical psychologist and an assistant professor of surgery in the division of trauma and acute care surgery here at MCW. Thanks for uh, joining us for this episode.
0: Yeah, so we are doing something a little different for the next couple of episodes. Um, As I have been thinking about the guests that we've had on the podcast now for the past almost two years, which is is wild. wild. um, I realized that um, Andrew and I have never really had a chance to talk about our work and our research. And I think what we're doing is pretty cool. So I figured that we could take the next two episodes and interview each other, which could be fun.
2: Yeah, I Um, think it's going to be cool.
0: Yeah. So we are just going to spend some time talking about the work we do. Um, We'll talk about my work this month and Andrew's work next month. And um, yeah, hopefully it'll spark some interesting conversation. I just want to give my usual kind of content reminders before we start. Um, This episode will discuss issues related to suicide. And so if you are not in a good headspace for that today, please take care of yourself and, you know, come find us later uh, when you are in a better headspace or feel free to take this episode in chunks if that works for you. And also if you are concerned about yourself or a loved one, um, there are resources available. You can reach the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by texting 988 or calling 988. Both text and voice options are available. There is um, There are services in Spanish, and if you are a veteran or know of a veteran that you're concerned about, when you dial 988, just press one, and that will connect you with veteran-specific resources. In addition, if you prefer texting over calling, you can text the Crisis Text Line, uh, the HOPE line, by texting the word TALK to 741741. Both of those services are available 24-7, 365, and they're free and confidential. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> So let's jump into our episode for today. um I'm going to be talking a little bit about the work that I do in in suicide research and healing. So Andrew, I'm going to hand yeah. it over to you.
2: Yeah, and, sounds uh,
1: good.
0: Have you put your interviewer hat on?
1: Sounds good. I love interviewing people. Good. um Yeah. yeah. So that makes
0: sense given like your job, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. It, it helps.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um. So. I'm curious, um, first of all, thank you for putting yourself out there with this episode and kind of, I'm excited that our listeners are going to get to hear a bit about your background and the awesome work that you're doing. So I guess to start out, um, could you tell us a little bit about your background in terms of like education or training? Like what's the lens from which you view this?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think my background is a little bit different than the background of other people working in this field. Um, so my bachelor's degree is actually in education. Mm. Um, I graduated from the University of wisconsin Ashkosh, go Titans, in 2000, which is a long time ago, with a degree in education um, and a major in Spanish, actually. So I was a Spanish teacher for some time.
1: Oh, I didn't know um, that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. See, we're gonna learn new things about
1: yeah.
0: this <laughs> process. I was a Spanish teacher and then um after several years of kind of going back and forth, you know, not quite finding my place, I sort of wandered into public health accidentally. I have an ex a really good friend, Renee, who I met through Twitter. <laughs> Actually back in oh. the day we ended up being running buddies. And Renee um, at the time, and actually still now uh, was working in public health. And I was talking to her about her job and what she does. And it sounded really interesting to me, particularly from kind of the health equity, social justice perspective of public health. So in 2012, I decided to go back to school um, and get my master's in public health um, at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And It's interesting because a lot of folks in my cohort were focused on health issues like really important health issues like HIV and AIDS, maternal and child health, global health. And I was kind of the odd one out in my cohort. I was really interested in topics related to injury. Um, So I remember one of my projects was on um, safety helmets for, for kids on bikes. And it was relevant to me because at the time my kids were pretty small. And as I progressed through my MPH trajectory, I became more and more interested in um, mental health related issues. I think that stems largely from my own lived experience with mental health issues um, and living with anxiety for pretty much my entire adult life. And, you know, kind of understanding myself a little bit through the process, I thought it was really interesting that in public health, you don't see mental health represented as much. And so again, I kind of felt like the odd person out. I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. Um, so I um, finished up my master's. And, then Sarah,
1: I, and oh, sorry, yeah. I was muting myself because there's a helicopter taking off. So oh. sorry about the noise. So I was curious about that public health traditionally not including a focus on like mental or behavioral health yeah that that's a thing did I hear that right
0: yeah and I and I like I said I feel like things are changing for example the American Public Health Association now has a mental health caucus they are starting to focus a little bit more on suicide prevention but I think in general, for a long time, and I think a little bit still, people think of mental health and physical health as being separate, different entities. And with mental health really falling into the realm of like, oh, that's a psychiatry issue. That's a psychology issue. That's not for, you know, kind of general health. And that viewpoint is changing. And it's really great to see like mental health america just came out i think last year with um, like a public health approach to suicide prevention which is so cool very cool so the tide is shifting a little bit and um so I, I fit in a little bit more with my public health colleagues
2: nice um
0: so then i came to mcw in 2015 and i started working um with dr steve and one of my mentors on a youth suicide prevention grant, um, partnering with the state of Wisconsin Department of Health Services. And so it really was fortuitous that I was able to find a job that allowed me to continue that work in mental health and specifically suicide. As I got more into my work at MCW, that's when I really discovered my love for research. Um, Working with Dr. Hargarten, Terry DeRune-Cassini, others who um, have shaped so much of my journey, I really found myself compelled to ask and answer questions about Mm. suicide and suicidal behavior. And so that led me to the PhD program here at the medical college and the the work that I did through that. Um, And so it's been kind of a winding path. Mm -hmm. here um but i can't imagine myself doing anything else
1: Mm. i love uh what you said about like you framed research as like asking and answering questions you know yeah um can you say more about that like what yeah
0: i think i'm a naturally curious person um and suicide is such a um It is so contrary to kind of our instincts, right? Like our instinct is to stay alive. Our instinct is to protect ourselves. And suicide seems, I think, seem to me, although it makes more sense now, but like counterintuitive to that. And so really for me, it's like what contributes to a person getting to that point and from a public health perspective, what can be done to prevent suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I think I've evolved a little bit in that prevention language too, um, Mm -hmm. over time. And my thinking has become a little bit more nuanced about, about that.
1: Yeah. In what sense?
0: (laughs) That's that question. Um,
1: Cause I think it's, I think I know where, where you're yeah. going and I just think it's a really interesting and important like aspect of you, like as a professional, like in this space.
0: Yeah. So I think it's a couple of things. Um, first of all, you know, the last couple of years, our division has really developed a focus on working with and supporting suicide loss survivors and we've had suicide loss survivors on the podcast. And one of the things that we've heard is that the term suicide prevention can be a little harmful, can be harmful for lost survivors because wrapped in that, wrapped up in that is sort of this connotation that if suicide can be prevented, then I should have done something differently or I missed something. Um, and like so that language
1: we, implies that.
0: Yeah. And Uh so when we use language like zero suicide, for example, that I think can or has the potential to carry some of that meaning Mm -hmm. for lost survivors. And so I think we need to be more thoughtful about how we talk about suicide in the field of of suicide and suicide prevention. And the second point, you and I have talked about this recently, Mm -hmm. um, is... I think that oftentimes we we think about suicide or being suicidal as very like, I don't want to use the term black and white, like Mm -hmm. very like, there's no yeah yeah, Um, and I think I have, and you said this, uh, a little bit of a beef maybe with our profession in some ways, That there's often not space for that nuance. Yeah. Um, You know, certainly we want to create environments where people want to stay. They want to live. They feel supported. Mm. They feel loved and connected and cared for. We want to create safe spaces, you know, where people who are thinking about suicide, you know, maybe don't have access to means. Mm-hmm. we want to do all those things. And also I think that we need to create spaces for people who are suicidal mm-hmm. to have conversations, to be understood, to be heard. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I've, this is a really long answer. I feel like something else that I see, particularly with clinical colleagues, is when somebody dies by suicide, just this tremendous guilt. Mm. Um, when a patient dies by suicide, tremendous guilt, really, really difficult. And I think we're all doing the best we can. Um, and ultimately, I don't think it's possible to prevent every suicide. I I don't think it is. I think mm-hmm. we need to do our best to, as I said, create caring, loving, connected spaces as much as we can. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to also acknowledge that this is a, it's a challenging problem Mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, we're doing the best we can.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Something you said that really resonated with me just now was kind of this idea of needing to create spaces or experiences that make people want to live yeah um and it that makes me think of kind of some of the more like community-based or like structural aspects of suicide prevention that I think are of interest to you do you mind like what pieces of that puzzle like come up for you as you as you think about that
0: yeah, so I it makes me think a lot about my dissertation research. So my research kind of globally focuses on groups of people who maybe have higher rates of suicide. Um, and one of those groups is farmers in Wisconsin. Um, I come from a small community in Wisconsin and my grandparents were dairy farmers. And so I've always felt an affinity for farmers. And I know in recent years, we've seen a lot of, I mean, back in the 80s when the, the farm crisis happened, but then more so in recent years, there's been a lot out there about kind of the plight of farmers and how difficult it is for farmers, but there's not a lot of research out there mm-hmm. about farmer suicide. And so that was my dissertation work. Um, And really it focused on some of those Structural factors, even policy level factors Mm -hmm. that, you know, don't necessarily directly cause, but influence suicidal thoughts and behaviors among farmers. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, again, that's my public health lens coming in, but one of the things that I was really surprised, um, to learn and this is in international literature more so than it is here but the impact of climate change which is a huge like macro factor but really how that influences farmer mental health and suicide um, among farmers you know thinking about policies around commodity pricing for example um i was just talking to a woman who is a farmer along with her husband and she was talking about milk prices right now and how low they are mm. and how it's really really difficult for dairy farmers to provide for their family when milk prices are so low and that's something that's completely out of their control mm. and we know that financial stress is a risk factor for suicide mm-hmm. and so it's so much more than depression and anxiety mm-hmm. and all of those things are incredibly important in the equation. Um, I think broadening our understanding beyond that individual and looking at the context in which they're living can be helpful.
2: Yeah,
1: that's such a drop the mic statement. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, For people that haven't kind of spent time thinking about this or aren't as familiar with like farming um, and factors that like influence like economic viability of that can you make yeah. help make the connection to climate change?
0: Yeah, absolutely. so um we've seen over the past few years and I'm saying this you know as we had a almost 60 degree day yesterday in February yeah really really extreme shifts in weather. Um, you know, things like extreme rain and flooding, drought, um, you know, late blizzards, all of these extreme weather events, they really influence the the ability to produce for farmers. They influence things like planting and harvest, crop production, things like that. This is what farmers are depending on for their livelihood. Mm-hmm. And so when, a flood wipes out an entire crop that can decimate a farm family's income mm-hmm. for an entire year. And it can be very difficult to recover from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we you have that financial stress. And I think, you know, one of the other things that I saw in my research, and this is not unique to farmers, but I think farmers um, can be very independent self-reliant kind of strong wanting really wanting to provide for others Mm. and when that ability is compromised it can really mess with a person's sense of identity and sense Mm. of self and sort of leave a person feeling lost and maybe like they aren't pulling their weight maybe they're a burden um And that's when you start to see things like thoughts of suicide coming into the picture. And so, you know, again, that is, um, fixing that is not simple, right? Like it's, that is a a cultural norm sort of factor that we're looking at that, you know, isn't going to respond to the typical interventions that we see for suicide prevention.
2: Yep.
1: Yeah. Could we dive in a bit more into your dissertation? Like, yeah. I'm curious if you could kind of describe your project and then kind of what you found.
0: Yeah. Um, so again, my dissertation work focused on understanding farmer suicide in Wisconsin. So a really small microcosm of, you know, global farming. Um, there were a couple of different components to the work. The first component was going back and looking at investigation reports of farmers who died by suicide in Wisconsin between 2004 and 2018. So this was pre COVID, but it included the kind of the Great Recession of 2008. Um, And what I did was I read through all of those investigation reports and I came up with a set of themes that sort of summarized or explained the data that I was reading. Um, So it was a qualitative project. And it was pretty striking, the themes that I found. One of the themes was around kind of that sense of rugged individualism and that sense of individualism or independence being compromised um, at, you know, around the point that somebody died and that could be you know through an injury it could be through kind of chronic disease um sort of an inability to like physically perform mm. as one had been able to in the past
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know reading and seeing things in in suicide notes like i can't you know i'm not able to you know do what i used to do i'm just a burden i'm no use to anybody kind of again compromising that sense of um identity
2: mhm
1: Sarah, for Um, folks that aren't familiar with um, these reports, like, mm -hmm. do you mind just describing, describing them?
0: Yeah. So these reports typically come from medical examiners and coroners who are talking to family members or loved ones after somebody has died by suicide and trying to gather information about what happened Um, You know, maybe what was going on in that person's life before they died, what might have even contributed to the suicide. They're also looking at things like toxicology, you know, alcohol in the system, drugs in the system, things like that. Um, But there can be really, really rich information in those narratives. And we typically don't look at those because it takes a lot of work Mm -hmm. and it's not cut and dry. And it's reliant on, you know, kind of third person, second person, third person summaries of what actually happened. But it's really the closest that we have to telling us a story about what was going on in that person's life before they died.
2: Yeah.
0: So all of those reports are compiled and put into a system called the violent death reporting system. And that's where I was able to pull them from.
2: Great.
1: Great. So what else did you find in terms of themes from these reports?
0: Yeah. So, um, one of the things was, you know, kind of the burden of farming and, Mm. and being a farmer, um, kind of that nonstop nature of farming. It's such a different life than the life that I have, for example, where Mm. i you know, drive into my job in my office, I'm in front of my computer for the day I go home. And I, you know, I'm able to, there's some separation there. With farmers, that's not the case. You are living and breathing your work all day, every day, often with no break. Um, because if you take a break, then who's going to take care of the farm? Mm-hmm. And that gets really overwhelming for folks. And so I did see that as well, you know, kind of that um, relentless nature of, of the lifestyle itself and just being really worn down by that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think in the other big point that I want to raise is access to firearms. We see in the general population, about 50% of people die by firearm suicide. And in the group of farmers that I looked at, it was closer to 70%. Mm. And as part of my kind of second component of my dissertation research, I talked to farmers and I talked to them about guns and the role of guns in their lives. And, You know, a lot of farmers carry a gun with them on their tractor or their combine because they are dealing with pests, coyotes, things like that, that are maybe coming onto their land. You know, it's just a part of, it's a tool of the job.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so, and also that means that there is access in Mm -hmm. a way that maybe others don't have access And so having that access really was a factor in many of the suicides I looked at. And I think, you know, a lot of our safe storage conversations don't account for different (laughs) lifestyles.
2: Mm. And so,
0: um, yeah. So I think that access and that knowledge of how to use firearms um, is something that needed to be talked about.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. For this second part, like what What else did you hear from farmers that you talked to?
0: Yeah, so I, for the second part, I interviewed current Wisconsin farmers and I asked them about kind of the stressors that they face and the supports that help them cope with those stressors. And in terms of stressors, it was fairly similar to what I heard in the interviews. It was things like, you know, the relentless nature of the job, of the lifestyle, um, you know, sort of these macro level factors that are out of their control. It's sometimes it's relationship issues and isolation. Um, but I think the difference between what I read in the first component and what I heard in, through these interviews was the availability of social support and coping. Mm-hmm. Um, that really is central and important for farmer mental health and wellness. I heard several farmers say how meaningful it is to them to like be able to go to town and sell their stuff at, you know, sell their produce at a farmer's market and see the people who are buying their food Mm -hmm. or buying their products and feeling really connected to the community in that way.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I heard about, you know, the need to get off the farm, the need to have friends who maybe aren't farmers and you know go and do bowling league or softball or something that doesn't involve being on the farm all day every day. I also heard about the role of, you know, a strong sense of faith and being really connected to a faith community and how important that was for people. So I think again the more we can build those supports into our society and not expecting farmers to come to us, but us Mm -hmm. maybe reaching out to them Mm -hmm. could help.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It
1: strikes me that uh, in what you're describing or what you're describing earlier in terms of like the economic strain of like a bad year in terms of weather or something like that, that there's a ton of economic pressure, but as you were just describing that, it I had never thought about like how that, the issue of like a bad year, also like then you're not able to go to the farmer's market right. and sell yeah. your crops and be proud of that and like mm-hmm. connect socially. Right. Um, so I hadn't thought about that like aspect of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it definitely is more than just, and not just, but it's definitely more than the, the, the immediate economic impact. It's, you know, it's kind of a ripple effect throughout the lives of these folks. And so, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I want to share with our listeners that I recently texted Sarah and told her that her research really influenced my clinical practice and a, in a certain interaction with a a farmer who had been injured and just had tremendous like stress around like the economic implications of that. And like being able to pass down like a viable farm to um, his children or like other relatives. And I think like before I was familiar with your work, Sarah, like that totally would have, I I think I would have totally underappreciated like the magnitude of that stressor. Um, mm-hmm. cause a lot of times when people are in the hospital or injured, it's like, yep, like that it sucks. Like you can't work. Like there's going to be an economic impact of this, but and and so that's distressing like across the board, but like, I think your work really helped me appreciate on a deeper level, um, all of the ripple effects of, of that injury for this farmer.
0: That so it's, odd.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. That means a lot. Um, and I think we're getting better. Um, I'm working on a project right now with the state department of health services that's focusing on rural suicide prevention in rural males over the age of 25. And we've been having lots and lots of conversations about farmers and even like immigrant farm workers, mm-hmm. which is a population that I didn't look at. And my dissertation is really, you know, not well understood in terms of mental health. Um, And it gives me a lot of hope that these conversations are happening. And, you know, I think also the really kind of innovative thinking that's happening in Wisconsin. Yeah. One of the things that I was super excited about was the Wisconsin Bankers Association held suicide prevention trainings for their bankers, because Mm -hmm. bankers are, you know, folks who are interacting with farmers when they're experiencing financial distress, I mean, financial gain as well, but financial distress. And so thinking about those like, community supports, bankers, seed distributors, co op owners, large animal veterinarians Mm. that are interacting with farmers regularly, because it's not super likely. And what I heard from farmers is that it's really difficult to like take an afternoon off and come into the clinic for a mental mm-hmm. health appointment. Yeah. Um. So having those supports out in the community, I think is a really good way to, to approach this issue.
1: For sure. And I think like, just if I can add a bit to kind of add contrast yeah. to that, like so much of the dialogue around su- suicide prevention has been like mental health focused or like, you know, that we need to treat depression um, or like that we need to increase access to mental health services for people in like rural areas and that's totally true but like I think part of the work that uh part of the your work that is so like creative and innovative I think is that it's challenging that kind of paradigm to think about like social context like you said and like creative ways of um connecting people to social support like trying to increase that protective factor
0: yeah yeah and I don't want to I don't mean to downplay the role of you know things like depression and anxiety and mental health care they're yeah. incredibly important for sure um mental health good mental health care saved my life i mean mm-hmm. it really is important and also <laughs> there are these other things that i'm really excited are are becoming part of the dialogue around yeah. this issue
1: yeah 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 So what, what else are you thinking about these days as, as you kind of plan, um, as you think about the future directions that you're interested in going in terms of like research to help understand suicide, like what kind of excites you about like potential future ideas or things that you want to extend?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I'm excited about a lot of things actually. Um, You know, with the work that I have done with farmer suicide, I am hoping to scale that up a little bit and start to look at things regionally and nationally and see, you know, how and where there are variations or, you know, similarities and some of the factors that are contributing to suicide among our our nation's farmers. I'm also really excited about The fact that I think there's a growing recognition that a one size fits all approach to suicide prevention doesn't work. Mm. And so there is an exploration of how this is, I don't, this is the first time I'm talking about this with a person.
1: Oh, (laughs) I love it. Yeah.
0: But it's been rolling around in my head for a little while. So here on campus, we talk about like precision medicine and genomics. And I'm like, how can we kind of merge precision medicine and suicide prevention? Like, Mm. is there space, you know, we're not going to be able to tailor every single thing for every single person, but is there a way to sort of weave precision medicine into suicide prevention, kind of bringing that basic science framework into thinking about let's maybe we're not talking about a person's genes, but maybe we're talking about their environment. Mm. How can we tailor our strategies based on the environment? And I think likely this is happening as I'm talking about this between providers and patients, right? Like there are strategies that are being developed in clinical spaces that are sort of personalized, but is there a way to kind of scale that up? Yeah. Um, And so I don't know. That's just a thought that I've had that is like, oh, that might be kind of cool. I have no idea what it would look like or what it means. But yeah, I think the recognition that one size fits all doesn't work. Mm
1: -hmm. And then
0: working to figure out what does work excites me.
1: Yeah. Like how to cater a response or prevention approaches to... An individual
2: yeah
0: to meet the needs of the person yeah. like yeah how to do that so mm-hmm. yeah I think there's um there's hasn't been I shouldn't say this but I'm going to <laughs> mm-hmm. there hasn't been as much innovation in the space of suicide prevention as there has been in other fields mm-hmm. I think that that's changing
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that is very exciting to me yeah it gives yeah. me a lot of hope
2: yeah
1: very cool. I appreciate you sharing that. Like, even though it's not a formalized like idea yet, it's cool to hear, um, like what you're thinking about and it's such a nice example of what you're describing earlier in terms of the research process and being able to ask and answer questions. So you're like in a space with these ideas of developing questions. It sounds like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been just for life reasons been really interested in like suicide prevention among perimenopausal women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, you know, thinking about tailoring approaches based on a person's stage of their life, you know, based on it's yeah. So it's, I could go on and on, but it's exciting. So yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah.
1: Sarah, do you mind um, talking a bit about your like policy work and advocacy work? How does that fit in? Like, What has your involvement been and how does that fit into your role?
0: Yeah, so I um, am a volunteer with the Wisconsin chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and kind of taking off my Medical College of Wisconsin hat and putting on the AFSP hat. I've been involved in some advocacy um, at the state level um, and at the national level actually. Um, talking with legislators about things like funding for 988 um, so that 988 can be sustainable. So that has been really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. It's been really gratifying to see states, you know, kind of embracing 988 and in some cases supporting it. It's not in every state, but, you know, it's been gratifying to see kind of putting my MCW hat back on. Research can be really, really powerful in educating folks, decision makers about the impact of different policies. And so we've talked about it on this podcast and other episodes, but one of the things we looked at was the repeal of the 48 hour waiting period for handgun purchasing in Wisconsin and how that influenced or was related to an increase in suicide in urban spaces in our state.
1: So, can I no, just jump in? So, like, so folks yeah. that aren't familiar with that, that in the past, if you went in Wisconsin to buy a gun from a store, there was a requirement for there to be a 48 hour period before you could actually acquire the gun. Yep.
0: Yeah. Right? And that That's was
1: it. repealed.
0: It was repealed in 2015. Okay. So, it's been quite some time since. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, we can do research that talks about the impact of these policies or the non-existence of these policies without advocating for a specific policy. I think it's our job as researchers to do our best to, to share what we're finding. And so, you know, there, there are ways to do this policy work without advocating, mm-hmm. but there are also ways to advocate, Um, mm-hmm. you know, through, you know, I've talked to my legislator multiple times about different policy avenues related to suicide prevention, the bridge barriers on the Hone Bridge here Mm -hmm. in Milwaukee, for example. So I think it's a really important part of this work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So being like actively engaged, just like as a citizen and community member in speaking with legislators, even if it's not on behalf of. Yes. MCW. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh anybody can do it. Yep. Legislators are just like us. For sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I feel like we could talk for hours. I know.
0: Um, but we're like coming up to the top of the yeah. hour. Uh,
1: so could we do I'm curious like what is something we haven't talked about that you want to share like with our
2: listeners? Mm-hmm.
0: That's a great question. I feel like there are so many things. Um I guess one of the things that I've learned through this work, um we say suicide is complex. We read it in our books, I've said it a million times, I've written it a million times. When I really think about it, I don't think it's that complex. I think it comes down to love, which sounds really hokey. Mm and really um, maybe naive in some cases. And I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. talking about romantic love. I'm talking yeah. about love and policies, You know, love in our systems, love in our organizations, between people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I read a book as I was doing my dissertation by Eric Fromm called The Art of Love that really impacted me um, and thinking about, you know, it's really, is it really that complex? Like, people need to be loved. They need to be connected. They need to be cared for. Sometimes I think we hide behind complexity. Like, this is so complex. it's There's no way to crack it. And yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know if I buy that.
1: Mm. Interesting. I didn't uh, expect that. Oh. Um, <laughs> but I, so it's like. On the one hand, it's very multifactorial. And, yeah. But at the same time, you're saying that it boils down in a lot of ways to like human connection?
0: Connection, support.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And not just human connection and support, but support in our society, support in our policies. Um. I think if we thought about things as collective care versus self-care, we would be a lot better off.
2: Um, mm,
1: Very cool.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Well, I am just so thankful to have you um, as a colleague, Sarah, and I'm glad that we've jumped into this podcast thing, despite it being super out of my comfort zone, at least. (laughs) Um, But I think you're just such a a rock star in this in this space and i think someone that's uh you know your heart's in the right place and um i think you're uh, it's just great to work with you so thank
2: you like appreciate
1: you telling us about your work and the way you think about these things
0: yeah yeah, yeah. thanks for the opportunity and i've been like diving into some of your papers so right. I'm ready to interview oh my gosh. you next okay. month about your research. I'm so excited. Um, I think we make a really great team. And so I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about your work. Awesome. Thank you.
1: Um, I would say I'm looking forward to it, but <laughs> I'm kind of dreading
2: it. <laughs> no, it's
0: going to be great. It's going to be fun. So, yeah. All right. Thanks, Andrew. And for listeners, just a reminder, if you need any connection, support, resources, you can dial or text 988 or text the Crisis Lifeline uh, by texting the word TALK to 741-741. And we'll see you next month for a conversation about Andrew's work. Thanks for listening.
1: Take care, everyone.